Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles. Today, we're going to be talking about the iPad mini again. Apple Watch Series 7 is now up for pre-order. Changes coming to iOS 15.1 and more. This episode is brought to you by Truebill, Gabby Insurance, Nebia, and ExpressVPN. We'll tell you about those in a moment. Joining me this week, again, two weeks in a row, my friend Wes Hilliard. How's it going, Wes? Pretty good, Stephen. It's uh, raining outside today, so you might get a little uh, background to your oh, podcast today. Oh. It might be one of those background sounds built into iOS 15. Little rain sounds. And before uh, every listener in the UK is like, where did William go? He'll be back. He'll be back next week. Do not fret. We just had a weird scheduling thing this week uh, on me. So he, he'll be back next week. I mean, we miss him dearly, but you know, he, he doesn't like Ted Lasso. And that's a, that's a real problem. Yeah, that's the issue. Ted Lasso finales this week, right? So that's right. That's uh, the last episode is tomorrow. Yeah, people have been trying to get him to watch it. I see people on Twitter. Everyone's trying to convince him, but I don't know. I, th- I think he's still not giving in. So keep at it, listeners. Keep telling William to watch uh, Ted Lasso. Earlier this week in the podcast feed, you saw an interview with Austin Mann. He's the travel photographer extraordinaire. He does the annual review of the iPhone cameras. He usually takes them to some exotic location. We usually cover it on Apple Insider. Went to Tanzania with the iPhone 13 Pro, but he actually came on the show. He was very gracious to talk about some of the behind the scenes of his review of the iPhone 13 Pro, how he got some of those shots and his just general thoughts, again, about the camera system and macros, cinematic mode and all that. It was a really fun conversation. So if you missed that, it is the previous episode in the feed our interview with Austin Mann. It was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a good interview. Thank you. Thank you. It was interesting to hear how he got some of those shots. If you go to his review on his website, he's got a video at the top. And one of the shots that he got is like of these lions kind of lounging around. And he basically did that sitting in a Jeep with the iPhone 13 Pro on an Osmo stabilizer attached to a monopod. So it basically had this long stick with the iPhone 13 Pro at the end of it, and they were driving by slowly, ready to gun it if the lines got a little, you know, antsy. And uh, that's how they got that that video shot. So he talks about some of those shots and mounting the iPhone to the bottom of a helicopter is pretty fun. And then I also got to review a pilot about the iPad Mini. This was one of those things where Apple did their event, announced the iPad Mini, talked about how pilots love using the iPad Mini, and everyone was like, "Huh, is that actually a thing?" And apparently it is. And I actually got to meet with a pilot here in Central Florida. He's been flying for 35 years or more. And he's been using the iPad for the past eight years, uh, since like 2013. And he loves the iPad, uses it in the cockpit, basically relies on it for many of his flights, especially in older aircraft that don't have the modern technology. They talked about how he uses the iPad mini and why the mini maybe over the larger 12.9 inch iPad Pro, what he thought of the new one. And so that was a lot of fun. That's on YouTube. I'll put that link in the show notes as well if you want to check it out. Well, Stephen, you got you to gotta tell everyone about how you threw your iPad on the ground and smashed it to smithereens. Yes. So that part of the interview was unscripted, but basically it's a smaller plane. You know, it's a single prop, you know, like two-seater plane. I had given him the new iPad mini, my iPad mini to, you know, kind of, I wanted him to check it out. I wanted him to use it, see what he thought about it. And he was kind of like balancing on his lap. And then I handed him the 12.9 inch and I was like, you know, what do you think of this compared to the little one? And he had his old iPad mini. So he had like a bunch of iPads on his lap. And then at one point, his name is Scott Oglesby. He was a wonderful guy, very gracious. (laughs) But he was like, where'd that other mini one go? And he kind of like lifted some stuff off his legs. And as he did that, the new iPad mini, my little iPad, it slid off his lap and took a tumble from the cockpit, hitting a strut 
bouncing off the tire, like basically hit every surface it could on the way down and fell on the ground. And it was like, man. Well, all things considered, uh, it survived pretty well. It really did. Like it was a hard fall hitting multiple hard surfaces. It fell screen down on the pavement. Like it fell on cement and the screen was cracked. There was like cracks along the entire length of the screen. The corners had like glass break cracks kind of thing, but it still worked. It worked great. And when the screen was on, you didn't really notice the cracks along the glass. I used it. You know, I I kept using it. My daughter really likes watching stuff on the little iPad because it's kind of like her size, you know. So we used it for a week, but I was like, okay, well, I got Apple Care. I made an appointment at the Apple Genius Bar in Brandon, Florida for this past Sunday. So almost a week ago, but it was it was past Sunday. It was broken on a Friday. The next appointment I could get was Sunday, so two days later. I went into the Apple store. You know, the Apple store experience is interesting now. Have you been to an Apple store anytime recently? Uh, no, I live nowhere near one, so I've had no reason to go to one. Right. So, you know, this is a reason to go so they could check it out. And typically, if you have Apple Care and whatever damage your device has received warrants a replacement device, a lot of times they will have it in stock in the store and you can just swap it out. Like if it's a phone, most likely they'll just swap it out there in the store and you leave with a new phone or a refurbished phone or whatever it may be. But I went in on a Sunday, showed them the iPad. It was like, oh man, this stinks. But AppleCare covers accidental damage. I think you get two instances a year with AppleCare Plus. So this, this will be my first one, strike one. But they said, well, we're going to have to order it. We don't have it in the store, I figured, because it's a new product. And because it's new, like if you go to buy an iPad mini now, it won't come for like weeks, basically. So I, I fully expected it to be a long time. But they put in the order on Sunday. And two days later, like 48 hours later, Tuesday of this past week, they said, your thing's ready to pick up. And I went Wednesday, the next day, because it's like a 40 minute drive. But I went out there, gave them the old iPad, got the new one. You know, I don't even know if it's refurbished or not. It had like the white paper film that you peel off Apple devices when you take it out of the box. So it might have been like a new one or maybe like someone used it and returned it. I'm not sure where those come from. Great condition, looks brand new. It's a $50 deductible on the iPad mini for the replacement. So I did have to pay $50 uh, to get the replacement. But yeah, 48 hours later. Got a new iPad mini. Looks good as new. Yeah, you got lucky. That's that's great. Yeah, I did. And and it was um yeah, I was very glad for that. Very glad for Apple Care. I don't know what the cost would have been without Apple Care because you could still well, I don't know. Have you ever had to get a replacement device after accidental damage? Not just like replacing a screen, but actually getting a whole other device? Yeah, I've never had that much damage done to anything. So Yeah. You can do screen replacements on iPhones and usually it's like a couple hundred bucks, maybe even up to three hundred bucks in the store, which again way better than buying a new phone for sure. But the deductible being only fifty. Talking about the iPad. Scott Oglesby, the pilot, you know, he really liked the new iPad. It has a slightly bigger screen because there's no home button. And he was thinking he probably will upgrade to it. If anyone from Apple's listening and you want to send him an iPad, hit me up. You know, there were there were commenters on the YouTube video that were like, give this man an iPad, the pilot. So yeah, Apple, if you want to do it, I'm I'm totally down. But let me ask you, it's been a couple weeks now with the iPad mini. Uh been a week since I reviewed it. What has been your experience since like the last episode using the mini i've uh, i've enjoyed using it yeah it's a great little device reading scrolling through things uh twitter whatnot it's just one of those things where it's just perfect 
for being a, a handheld device. I kind of looked at my iPad Pro the other day and was just like, yeah, you know, I could use this as a tablet, but I'd just rather not. <laughs> it's just so big. Right. Anytime I'm using the iPad Pro, it's in a keyboard or in a stand or something like if i'm holding it it's for very short periods of time it's just a very large awkward device do you uh have one of the original ipad pros like the 2015 if you remember like i remember the first time i unboxed that and it looked like a joke ipad like this thing was just so big and the proportions <laughs> were so oversized it felt like it was a gag like a prop it just felt so large and thank goodness we got rid of that home button and stuff in the recent updates but yes it's still just such an overwhelmingly large uh, device i can't imagine what a 15 inch ipad would be like it oh my goodness the ipad mini is just the perfect like palmable hand size device just use it all day that way yeah, it's interesting. You know, the screen inch sizes don't sound big on paper. The iPad mini is an 8.3 inch screen now. The base model iPad is a 10.2 inch, which is like a less than two inch difference. But the physical size of these devices are so different. And especially going up to the 12.9 inch. My wife has a, I think a 2017 iPad Pro. So it still has the home button with Touch ID. It's the 12.9 inch. And the thing is just massive. Like it is just really, really big. But, you know, she likes it. It's kind of her computer thing. But but the small size, I have been really enjoying it. I have been noticing more and more weird scaling issues and sizing issues. I tweeted the other day the weather widget on the iPad mini. I'm using like the four icon size weather widget, which I think is the largest one you can get on the iPad mini, which is also strange. Like some of the, the widget sizing is is awkward. But the weather widget where it shows like the next five-day weather conditions, cloudy, lightning, sunny. They're like totally overlapping each other and running into each other. <laughs> like it's not spaced evenly. There's no space between the conditions. Like it's it's a really weird scaling thing. So I'm hoping in some iPad OS updates soon that some of these scaling issues get fixed. And a lot of people have commented also, you know, if you hold it in landscape, there are very, very large screen bezels like you have a lot of screen real estate on the left and right of the ipad mini when you turn it into landscape and you could really fit some more stuff in there so hoping that stuff changes but i still really enjoy it i still love how light it is and just using it around the house it's obvious this is one of those rare occasions where apple's hardware team was just ahead of the software team somehow mm. you know this is one side was doing a thing and the other side just didn't know about it. I don't think this is going to remain forever. I mean, this might be an iPad OS 16 thing. Sadly, though, we might be waiting a little bit, but um, Apple's definitely going to be tweaking the UI for this thing. It would be weird to, to see a specific sized UI for the um, iPad mini because iPad OS works on all the other iPads uh, perfectly fine. Right. None of it feels strange. And yeah, like I've, I've seen people compare, like I think Andrew mentioned, like I want iPhone sized icons on the iPad mini. And that would be interesting, but it would also require a drastic UI um, change from iPad OS. And I'm, I'm not sure what app, how far Apple's willing to go as far as accommodating this tablet. Now, you know, the little tweaks here and there to give us some actual use of this space would be nice. Um, Apple, like I said before, did tell developers, hey, start considering the screen size and your UI development so that way you don't have a bunch of blank space. I opened a book for the first time on the iPad mini. And I had to go to the font menu and just hit that that large A button like six times just to get it to a readable size. It's <laughs> it's crazy what like the defaults are on this device. Yeah, it's it's awkward. But again, the per app settings, like you know, you had mentioned, you know, using the control center widget to adjust in app text setting. You can customize it for different apps like Twitter, 
or mail or safari you know that is really useful so anyway i'm still enjoying it yeah i edited last week's show totally on the ipad mini and i will say battery life you know a couple people mentioned in their reviews you know battery life because it's a smaller device you get less battery life but maybe it's the a15 or maybe just because it's a new device i mean my ipad pro is only a few months old 12.9 inch but editing an entire episode on the ipad mini battery life was actually great i didn't have to plug it in to charge it Sometimes even my big iPad, depending how long an episode is, the battery will take a significant hit. But I was able to edit the whole thing on it. And the screen size didn't bother me too much because I was only working amazingly with two tracks, you know, my audio, your audio. The Apple Pencil worked great with it. And having such a light device for a handheld task, because I edit podcasts with the Apple Pencil, holding the iPad or trying to rest it on my leg. With the big iPad, I do have to rest it on something. I have to like you know, put my knee up and, you know, rest it on that or, you know, kind of hold it against my body. But with the iPad mini being so light and so small, like holding it for an extended period of time is not a strain. I'm not having to constantly readjust how I'm holding it. And it's not, it doesn't feel awkward, you know, holding it for a long amount of time. So I actually did enjoy editing a full show on the mini. Yeah, I would say the battery life isn't a concern. I mean, Apple's been targeting that same 10-hour battery life on every iPad, regardless of size, for a while now. So unless you're doing something intensive or playing a, a heavily like graphics and physics-based game, you're not going to spend burning battery life too much. Yeah. It also, you know, charges pretty quickly too. You know, it's it's an iPad, so you can charge it with a 27 watt, 30 watt maximum or whatever, and get that battery up really quickly. So not difficult device to use throughout the day if you need to bump it up a little bit here and there. Have you played any games or anything on this or have you just been using it for like media consumption? I've not done any games. I've just been doing podcast editing and like watching stuff here and there, YouTube videos, but I'm sure it's awesome for games. Have you played some? Yeah, the pinball game in Apple Arcade's really good on it. It's like the perfect size uh, and that's a vertical game. Like I feel like this is really great for vertical orientation games. Yes. I mean, I would really like a controller for this i want to try and find a uh, game vice like grip for this thing and turn it into a giant nintendo switch but alas <laughs> nobody's making one yet right but no like this this is just a really good touchscreen thing so like things like genshin impact work well on it that a15 processor can handle high-end graphics just fine but then things like tiny wings or alto's odyssey that game is really great on this guy so again just pretty much anything like that you can think of it's a uh, simple touch-based distraction kind of things but also like some more intensive games like like I said, uh, Genshin Impact work really well here. It's a, just a good good size for yeah. handheld gameplay. Was that pinball game you're talking about? The Zen Pinball Party? Yes. Oh, okay, cool. I'm gonna try it out. Yeah, that one's that one's pretty fun. Put that one in show notes. Apple Arcade. Very cool. Don't let the DreamWorks tables distract you. There's some actual like pinball tables in there that are pretty fun, like uh, Medieval okay. Madness and stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay. Very cool. Well, I'll put the review for the iPad Mini again in show notes and the pilot interview to get his thoughts on it in the show notes YouTube video and a written review if you'd like. Now, the big announcement this past week was Apple officially said the Apple Watch Series Seven will go up for pre-order. As you listen to it, if you listen to this episode on Friday, today, pre-orders are up October 8th, delivering next Friday, October 15th, matching some of the rumors that were saying mid-October. And some people actually said, I think John Prosser actually gave these specific dates recently, but you can pre-order it now. Interestingly, as we record on Thursday, you still cannot see tech specs or mess with configurations or even see pricing on the Apple Watch Series 7 models on Apple's website or in the Apple Store app, which I would have liked to see because I'm like, I want to consider, am I going to get a stainless steel, go titanium? What are the costs with the different bands? And you can't do any of that kind of configuration or pricing. You know, and this was even before, like before you 
pre-order something, typically Apple puts the product in the Apple Store where you can't buy it yet until pre-orders open, but you could see pricing for the different configurations and kind of get ready what you want, sometimes even favorite a certain item in the Apple Store app so you can access a configuration quickly when it's actually time to pre-order. So it's weird and also unfortunate that you can't get any of that information right now. There have been some leaks, you could say, or at least on Amazon's website, that you can find some product pages for the new Apple Watch Series 7. Well, we'll include a link to the article that links to the Amazon store. You can't buy it on the Amazon store yet, but it does show Apple Watch Series 7, 41 millimeter and 45 millimeter. And it shows the different aluminum colors, which they have a green aluminum case, the Abyss Blue, product red, and the Starlight, the new Starlight color, and a Midnight. Those are at least the aluminum Apple Watch Series 7 colors. And it also lists some of the stainless steel models for the Series 7, but no titanium on this Amazon store, just the stainless steel models. But Apple did announce titanium. So we know that those are coming, but they're just not listed anywhere on Apple's website, which is super weird. Very strange, just overall, this uh, launch cycle for that Watch Series 7. I don't understand why there's not a uh, page on the website. You can't even pre-configure it for pre-order or anything. I, I think when pre-orders actually go live, it's going to be very messy. I think things are going to sell out very quickly. I, I'm going to just get the standard aluminum I have for a few years. I got stainless steel once. It's fine. I didn't like that it felt heavier. Yeah. It felt like a, like the vibrations shook. I don't know. It, it was a different vibration style than the aluminum casing because of the weight. So just overall, I'm just going to stick with aluminum, even though the display is different because it's not sapphire, right? But right. I'm excited to order it. I want to, I want to check it out and see it in person next week. But, uh, kind of worried that this is going to be one of those things where they have five in stock and it's going to be difficult enough as it is probably to get into the Apple store and actually configure it. Cause if you've ordered an Apple watch in the last couple of years, you know that uh, it's that configurator is a little bit confusing. Um, the first page you see is just 30 different Apple watches with bands attached to it. And you, you, yes. you pretty much just have to ignore that page and just click through, just, just pick one. And then you get to the configurator and actually get to select your color and, stuff apple just kind of tricks you with that page i don't know why it's even there it should just start on the configurator page i guess they just want a, a base input or something yeah and i would recommend you can buy the apple watches with different bands from the outset like you can get the milanese loop sometimes they'll even put like the link bracelet as like a pre-configured thing where you can just buy the watches that if you want to get it as fast as possible i would consider just doing the sport band or the solo loop configurations rather than trying to get the milanese with the watch, you can always buy those separately. It is a little more expensive because you, you're going to get a Apple Watch band with the watch no matter what. It might be a sport loop and then you buy the Milanese separate. But I think if you want to get it the fastest, do one of the sport loops. But yeah, ordering is going to be chaotic for sure. If you get a solo loop, you also have to like decide the size of the loop because they have individual number sizes for the solo and the braided loops as well. I'll be ordering one. I think I'm going to try and go titanium. I wish I could just see pricing. Like I just want to see pricing of the stainless steel versus the titanium. There was that news article where there was like an image on Facebook where someone took a picture of the new Apple Watch Series 7 display against the Series 6 display. So this image, it was posted on Facebook originally and then it was taken down off Facebook, but we were able to capture the image. It was a lot of places. And this shows the new display and in the announcement, it's hard to tell, like how much bigger is this display going to seem? Apple saying it's like 33% larger or whatever, but seeing these images of the new display, I mean, it really looks like content is going very close to the edge of the watch. And I think if you use like full screen photo 
watch faces or use like the gradient watch face or some of the other motions or just an app that might actually have a, a lighter colored background. I think it's going to be a significant difference how much real estate you get on this screen as opposed to the Series 6 and earlier. This year, just being a display change and that faster charging, it's really the notable features. And honestly, if you're a heavy Apple Watch user or if you have a model that's more than one year old, this is a great year to upgrade. I feel like the Series 7 is just, again, like it's the peak of this design. I don't think Apple's going to do that flat-sided design. If you've if you've been listening to the other podcasts in the Apple realm, uh, you know, John Gruber, he has this theory, and I, I, I agree with him, that that flat-sided design seems to maybe exist in some aspects. Right. That might actually be the cheaper Apple Watch, maybe an Apple Watch SE model of some kind, or kids mode kind of thing, because uh, just I agree with him that that design does not look very appealing. It doesn't look very premium. Right. If this Apple Watch Series 7 is the flagship premium model, then um yeah I I would say maybe this design might stick around for a couple of years but I think honestly this is the end of the design route for this particular Apple Watch I mean we've had this guy for going on six years seven years I I believe that maybe after a couple more iterations another couple of uh, health upgrades or something battery life upgrades we're gonna see a full case revision yeah soon and again very sad for anyone with um a band collection that's spanned six years but uh yeah this <laughs> this at some point we're just gonna have to move on from it and of course there'll probably be third-party adapters so oh that would be weird a third party adapter for a band i mean i assume yeah well you can buy those uh really weird ones right now i believe where it's like a slot into the apple watch and then it sticks out the uh standard oh yes. go to go to walmart buy a watch band watch band adapter like they that exist is that yeah, is true they're just awkward yeah yeah that is true well we'll let you know listeners how the pre-orders go if you want to follow us on Twitter, we'll probably be tweeting how that goes. It's probably going to be chaotic. <laughs> so if you really want one soon, you're going to probably want to order. It's 8 a.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Friday morning, October 8th. Pre-order start. I'll call it now. I'm expecting these to be identical prices to the Apple Watch Series 6. I mean, that's an easy call, but I'm just saying yeah. I, I don't expect any. Like, Even if it's a $50 bump, that's all we're going to see on most of these maybe. If Apple has been silent this long on pricing only to introduce a price increase at pre-order time, I think that would be a serious issue. <laughs> People <laughs> would be very upset. So I don't think that's going to happen. This episode is brought to you by Truebill. Now, if you're like me, you probably have a lot of subscriptions, either hitting your credit card or even hitting your checking account, just all the different apps, streaming services, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times you forget to cancel them. Maybe it's for, stopped using it and forgot to cancel it or wanting to cancel it, but it's hard to find how to do that. Well, Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. That's because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel. Truebill wants to make it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. Honestly, I said, man, this must be too good to be true. But I downloaded the Truebill app. I connected my accounts. They use Plaid to connect your bank and credit card so you know it's secure. I saw all my subscriptions right away. What's crazy is you can ask Truebill to cancel it right there in the app. And then that's it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You don't have to call anybody or talk to anybody. They will cancel those subscriptions for you. And it's just an incredible service. I highly recommend it. It's a beautifully designed app too. I love apps that are really useful, especially in the financial realm, but also are designed and look great. 
Truebill has over 2 million users and it helped them save over $100 million. Like this testimonial from Jennifer B who said, with Truebill's help, our family has saved $587 a year on unnecessary subscriptions. I really didn't understand how Truebill could help me until we decided to save for a very large home purchase. One other feature I love is if you have a subscription that actually raises in price, maybe you didn't realize that was happening or didn't know about it, Truebill can tell you when something increases in price, when one of your subscriptions changes. Great feature. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash Apple Insider. So go right now to Truebill.com slash Apple Insider and it can save you thousands a year. Truebill, T-R-U-E-B-I-L-L, Truebill.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Truebill for sponsoring this episode. And our thanks to Nebia. You know Nebia, they've been our friends for a long time. Nebia showers are backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook, who actually used one of the first prototypes of the Nebia by Moen Spa shower, and he said he loved it. And Nebia products were designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers doing years of research to develop a shower head that is an awesome experience in the shower, but actually saves water. And the Nebula by Moen Spa Shower and their new Quattro Head saves 45% of water compared to normal shower heads. And when I got the Nebula by Moen Spa Shower, I was able to swap it out in just about 15 minutes. They give you all the instructions, all the parts you need, and it's super easy. And the Nebula Quattro Shower Head is actually even easier to do. That only took me about 10 minutes. They look great, but most importantly, they feel great. It atomizes the water, that's the fancy word for it, and basically makes a spa-like experience right there in the shower. My kids love the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower because it's height adjustable and it comes with a little wand that you can use all over your body. And the Quattro has multiple settings, which I really like. I actually like the high pressure setting on that Quattro shower head, which also magnetically detaches and you can use it as a wand. They come in multiple colors. They all look great. White and chrome, matte black, black and chrome. And I have the spot resistant nickel finish, which looks great. And they also have other accessories like the shower shelf where you can hang loofahs, put some soaps on it and towel racks. I got it all in the spot resistant nickel and it looks great. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower starts at just $1.99 and for Apple Insider listeners, we have a deal for you. The first 50 people after this episode to use the promo code Apple Insider, all one word, at nebbia.com will get 10% off Nebbia products. Nebbia doesn't normally do deals like this, but they've partnered with Apple Insider for a long time and it's a great deal to jump on. So go to nebbia.com, that's N-E-B-I-A.com, slash Apple Insider, check out what they have to offer, and the first 50 people to use promo code Apple Insider when checking out will save 10% on Nebbia products. The only exception to this is pre-order products as Nebbia is currently offering free shipping in the U.S. on those products. Again, that's nebbia.com slash Apple Insider, and use the promo code Apple Insider to save 10%. Our thanks to Nebbia for sponsoring this episode. So iOS 15.1, a new beta came out, and some of the new features in the beta were a toggle for ProRes Video. ProRes Video was announced at the Apple event. Coming in the 15.1 update, at ProRes Video, you'll be able to toggle that on and off. If you don't know what ProRes Video is, probably shouldn't be toggling it on because it's going to be taking up a ton of space on your iPhone 13 Pro. I saw someone post 30 seconds of video is one gigabyte, something like that. I think if you're doing 4K60, at ProRes, yes, it is yeah, like one gigabyte. That's insane. I mean, it'll be a very beautiful TikTok video, but <laughs> that's about all you're going to get out of it. Yeah, so, you know, it is really for those who 
want to film with their iPhone. And, you know, I do know, I think Fernando Silva on YouTube, he does a lot of great iPad videos. He uses his iPhone as his camera, like to make those YouTube videos and they look great. So, you know, and William also uses the iPhone for his uh, YouTube videos of 58 keys. So, you know, if you're using it for YouTube or you're actually doing work with it, like professional work or whatever, Pro's video is a great option. It's going to be less compressed. You're going to get more quality and you'll now be able to toggle that off in 15.1 when it comes out. Well, I'm going to argue the opposite because, um, yeah, even though this is huge and uh, you have to have more storage to even take advantage of it properly at 4K, this is going to be one of those things that's like Pro Raw. If you know what it is, you're going to want to use it. Right. Yeah. The average dude who's buying an iPhone that doesn't even know what iOS is installed on it like yeah they're probably not going to need to use prores but if you have any interest in the field or make videos on the regular even if it's just a family video prores is going to be huge just because of the bit depth alone right. just like with pro raw on photos you shift that uh, color depth up a few notches just by using pro raw what what is it right. from 8-bit color to 12-bit color or something like that like it's it's a right. pretty significant shift and just go ahead and apply that same logic to pro res if you're filming in pro res you're getting that greater detail better color depth and all of that yeah. and of course yeah it's going to be a huge file i wouldn't use it for anything more than maybe five minutes you know yeah sure the happy birthday song or a kid unwrapping a present or <laughs> you know just a couple of minutes of video you don't want to shoot an entire uh, orchestral piece on it or something unless you have a two terabyte iPhone. Right. It's just one of those things where those quick little life moments can be captured in their absolute best quality yeah. quickly afterwards. Go edit it export it as an mp4 and get rid of that gigantic prores file right. absolutely <laughs> right you don't want to keep those things around definitely something to keep in mind yeah which i would be curious how that's going to affect icloud storage because if you have icloud photo library turned on it syncs all your photos and video to the cloud you know, I, I've been seeing a couple people on Twitter saying they really wish they could upgrade their iCloud storage past two terabytes. Now, if you have a Apple One Premier subscription with Apple, at least I have the option to actually add an additional two terabytes oh, absolutely. of iCloud storage. But there were people on Twitter in the same situation, multiple family members, Apple One Premier subscription but they do not have the option to add those two terabytes of storage. It's a it's a weird it's a weird tricky thing. And if if you're running into that issue where you can't upgrade to four terabytes, call Apple because it's absolutely a use case that yeah. like you can get four terabytes of storage. Okay, it's a bug, but it's a it must be a bug or something going on. But do you have any info? Like I just assume that if you take ProRes video, it's going to go up to iCloud just like any other video file you capture from your iPhone. Absolutely. If it's on your um if it's in your photo library, it's going to get uploaded. I mean. I haven't heard anything specific, but I honestly would be very confused if it was um, otherwise. Because what Apple would convert it to MP4 and then upload it—that that's just yeah, CPU yeah, cycles. Yeah. That's it's just not going to happen. Having ProRes, uh, I'll reiterate this again: having ProRes in the cloud is insane. Don't do that. I get it. Like you, maybe you want it to sync for editing. That's going to take hours. Just airdrop it yeah, to maybe. your iPad or Mac, then edit it, then either sift it over to your multi-terabyte external hard drive for perpetuity or whatever right. or delete it uh, and uh, and i'm one of those people who likes keeping files forever you know in their original format just in case you want to edit it or there's better software down the line this is one of those things where unless you have 10 10 terabytes laying around to to have a rolling six month cycle of prores on there or something <laughs> you're yeah. you're not going to want to keep it it's yeah. just going to be huge and you're never going to go back and edit it again i promise yeah and i want to encourage those who are going to be transferring large 
photo or video files. AirDrop is actually pretty fast, and I think it is almost faster than using a lightning to USB-C cable because I believe the speeds you get from transferring using one of those cables is still USB like 2.0 speeds. And so if you are like right next to your Mac with your iPhone, using AirDrop will probably transfer faster. Now, if you want to like manage the import a little more, you can connect your iPhone directly to your Mac. And then I use the image capture app, which is still on the Mac. It's like buried in the utilities folder, but you can just open Spotlight and search for image capture. And that application will let you see all the photos and videos on your device before you import them. And then you can pick and choose what to import and even import to a specific folder using the image capture app. And it's pretty speedy too, but AirDrop is really fast too. This is still going to take a, a while because uh, if you've ever used AirDrop on a 4K60 file, even like I think I tried to do it once, like I, I recorded for a full hour at 4K60 like an idiot. My phone was ready to melt. It, it was just one of those things. But you then you just go to the Photos app, click it and said, oh yeah, I'm just going to AirDrop this. Uh, for whatever reason, I know it doesn't matter what toggle you turn on or off. Maybe I've done something wrong, but the file still goes through some sort of conversion process before it's yeah. it's like preparing to airdrop that right. that stage actually takes longer than the actual airdrop, airdrop. i don't know why yeah. and i can imagine prores yeah. being even worse yeah that is true i will say too if you have never worked with hdr footage if you're capturing video on your 12 pro or 13 pro and you want to edit those video files they're going to come over as those dolby vision hdr files and i i edit them in final cut and in that interview that I did with Scott Oglesby about the iPad mini and being a pilot, half of those B-roll shots were actually from my iPhone 13 Pro. And A, they look really good. I mean, the, the video quality was incredible. But editing those HDR files can kind of be a pain in the neck. There are plugins and I think there's even a built-in effect called HDR tools that will basically take an HDR video file and like convert it to, I think it's REC 709 or whatever it is, like that standard picture profile. So you don't have to mess with it as much. But if you want to edit those HDR video files from your iPhone that they capture natively, you're going to have to be very comfortable with like the exposure settings and all that in Final Cut or wherever you edit your video. So just, just to be aware of that. Yeah, I believe uh, LumaFusion on the iPad handles all of these file types yes. pretty easily. You, again, but again, you do have to have a little of know-how of like, what is this setting actually do right beyond that yeah you can actually edit the files in LumaFusion pretty easily yeah exactly also coming in that ios 15.1 update is a toggle to disable macro mode some users have been complaining that you know macro mode is automatic right now on the iphone 13 pro or if you get close enough to an object you see in the viewfinder that it shifts to using the ultra wide camera and then you can get very close to a subject and take that macro mode and if you are trying to just take a normal picture and you know, you'll see it shift sometimes. Maybe you don't intend to do a macro photo. You're just wanting to take a photo close of an object with the one X camera. There'll now be a toggle in iOS 15.1 that will let you disable the macro mode. Then you don't have to worry about it switching automatically. Along with that, I did want to mention too, Halide, which is a popular pro camera app for the iPhone updated to 2.5 version 2.5 they now have macro mode built into the Halide app. And what's interesting is you can actually use a macro type mode with an iPhone 8 or newer. Now it's not gonna be the same quality as the iPhone 13 Pro models doing that macro mode because the ultra wide lens is what really allows for that crystal clear macro. But using the Halide app with this new macro mode in their version 2.5, 
you can get some incredible macro photos. You can really do fine adjustments as you're taking the photo, both on focus and light and light sensitivity and all that. And then Halide is actually processing that macro image a little differently than the stock photos app is. And again, some of the macro shots that people have been getting with the Halide app is pretty incredible. I mean, even some of the shots that Halide themselves have used in their announcement post is amazing. So Halide is a subscription model. You can pay $3 a month, $12 a year, which is really good. Or if you just want to buy it outright and never pay again, $50 and you get Halide forever. I do the annual subscription for Halide. I don't use it a ton. You know, I'm not doing like pro iPhone photography, but sometimes I do want to mess with just kind of use a, a manual settings camera. And Halide really is incredible from adjusting the f-stop to doing man, just doing manual focus, even if that's the only manual toggle you use in the Halide app, it really starts to feel like a pro camera. And now they have the new macro mode. And again, just really incredible photos you can get out of that. This is one of those apps where you have to really dig in and maybe even know a little bit of what you're doing because the iPhone magic of the camera of just point, click, shoot, you're done. And you have this beautiful masterpiece. Uh, it, you could just be anybody and take a good photo with an iPhone. That's the algorithms and stuff going on there. HDR uh, four and all of that just add up to this great image, um, regardless of what you're shooting most of the time. Uh, you go over to Halide and yeah, like there's a lot of stuff there and there's a lot of good tools and I've really enjoyed using them. Like I like playing around. They have their own raw format on top of Apple's uh, pro raw. So they have pro raw and then raw plus uh, you can right. switch between the two in the app um, that lets you have different levels of data to edit and post. And like Halide partners really well with Darkroom, the photo editing app. Like I think there's even a button that takes you straight to the editor if you want to use that. But right. a lot of cool stuff in that app. But I will say that there there is a learning curve. Uh, you'll need to understand some of these settings because honestly speaking, I think going full auto in that app is a waste. Like if you're if you're going to go full auto, just use Apple's camera app because you'll probably just get better pictures. Right. I will say you can definitely get better photos out of Halide uh, if you know what you're doing and then know how to edit afterwards. But as far as straight out of the camera shots, even when you're shooting Pro Raw straight out of the camera and hardly touching up afterwards, Apple's camera app still going to win out as far as yeah. point and shoot modes go. But yeah. Anyway. If you're shooting macro mode a lot, it's like, and I think I'm going to be experimenting with this because I've had much time to play with it just yet. Um, Apple doesn't let you toggle anything uh, other than on and off. I, having access to the actual focus slider will definitely make capturing those photos much better, much easier. And especially if you're on the 13 Pro with that uh, ultra wide, I wonder if they're tapping into that macro mode that Apple's using, or if it's always highlights a uh, actual tool. Yeah, and they've actually been on the show before, and maybe I'll see if they can come on again because, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to talk about this specifically macro mode. I will say just as an aside of the iPhone 13 camera, again, if you watch that pilot interview, some of the video I captured from the iPhone 13 Pro and the video quality was pretty amazing. I mean, it, the clarity and the depth, like the way it handled the lighting, like it was kind of in the morning and there was some harsh lighting, but the HDR is incredible. Like it was a blue sky, you know, we're in Florida, it's very sunny, but the HDR looks amazing off the iPhone 13 Pro, especially just watching the video clips on the iPhone 13 that I filmed on the iPhone 13 is pretty wild. But the 3X telephoto camera, 
which if you had a 12 Pro Max last year, you had a two and a half X telephoto. So this might not be as much of a difference for those of you who had that phone. But going from the 2X telephoto on the 12 Pro that I had to the 3X telephoto on the 13 Pro, I think there is a significant difference in the detail and just the kind of quality pictures you get. I was at an orchestra concert. My wife plays flute in an orchestra. And that is one of those situations where you're typically far from the stage and hard to get a good photo of the orchestra. I used the 3X lens from the back of the theater and there's an incredible photo that I was able to capture with the 3X lens on the iPhone 13 Pro. Not super great lighting. You know, it was kind of in an oldie theater and it was pretty dim, but really great detail. And you can even kind of pinch in and look at this photo and see people's faces clearly. And I remember when the, the 2X telephoto lens first came out, which was, I believe was on the iPhone 7 Plus, was the first time you got that telephoto lens. It was using it for portrait in that context, I think more so. Plus you could do uh, the close-up shots, but whenever you use that telephoto lens, you would lose a lot of detail when you took images using it. But man, telephoto lens on this and this is the lens that you lose if you go to the iPhone 13 non-pro versions. I really think it is actually a useful lens and I've been getting great pictures from it. I've been very happy with it. Yeah, I use 3X a lot. I mean, as someone who come from the 12 Pro Max, I will say that I've seen a lot of people saying, oh yeah, it's not a big camera jump from 12 Pro Max, 13 Pro Max. You're not going to notice much of a difference, but I disagree. I mean, changes in how light is captured in the telephoto lens is interesting because yet you're sacrificing a little bit of the light capture for zoom, but I'm definitely noticing the zoom more. Apple used to be switching over to the wide angle lens just cropped in a little bit whenever the light right. was off. So is is basically wasting that telephoto lens because you could never use it if you were anything other than optimal lighting conditions. And now while even though the light capture is a little bit lower, it seems Apple's a bit more aggressive in using that telephoto lens uh, for whatever reason. Generally speaking, I, I don't know of situations where you're going to want need the 3x zoom in less than optimal lighting conditions anyway like this is something i'm going to use at my nephew's football games or you know any anything brightly lit outdoors stuff like that this is going to be great something too though i have noticed is the portrait mode being zoomed in a bit more is interesting i used to like capturing photos from like across a dinner table at a restaurant or something. And now it's just close enough that it's a little bit awkward because you're basically zooming <laughs> right in on their face instead of there's, there's no, you have to move backward a little bit to, to get them in the frame properly. So that one X portrait works a lot better there, but which is nice. Cause I don't think you had the option before of doing like one X versus three X portrait. Nope. Uh, you did. You could switch oh, you between the different portrait modes on the last iPhone. I don't know if it was before that, but the iPhone 12 definitely had that option oh okay i, I did want to mention one more thing though the portrait mode is a bit more interesting here too because one x portrait mode is actually a good feature on this phone where that captures photos you wouldn't be able to get with this uh device otherwise because one right. x does not have that quality of bokeh but if you're on 3x and your subject is close enough you're gonna get a pretty silky uh bokeh anyway so right i would recommend people uh try because I've, I've done a few of these now 3x by itself portrait of somebody is actually sometimes going to look way better than the 3x portrait mode just because <laughs> the artificial bokeh is not going to cut it uh otherwise 
Right. And that's something that I talked to Austin Mann in our interview, you know, I asked him about portrait mode and he was like, well, now that the telephoto lens is a 77 millimeter equivalent focal length, there's actually a natural bokeh that comes with that kind of millimeter length, focal length of a camera. And this was actually something Jason Aiton uh, talked to him about because he would take some product photos sometimes of like Apple devices. And I'd be like, man, what camera are you using? And they get that uh, photo with the bokeh. And he's like, the iPhone. I was like, what? He was like, yeah, I just switch it into the telephoto lens. And so if you are trying to take a cool product photo or you want to do a portrait, but not use portrait mode, just have natural bokeh, move a little farther away from the subject, go to the 3X telephoto lens on your iPhone and you actually get really nice natural bokeh that way. And one of the weird things is when I had the 12 Pro, I would start doing that with the telephoto lens and the 2X, you know, I could usually hold it as arm's length and if I was like trying to take a picture of a device or my Apple Watch, you get some natural bokeh there. But now with the 3X lens, because it's a farther throw, I kind of have to hold it out like really, really far <laughs> to get that natural bokeh. But it works really well. And a lot of times, like in Austin Mann's review on his website, a lot of the photos that he took that look like portrait photo, there's one close up of him holding the binoculars. And it, that is just natural bokeh. It is not portrait mode with artificial blurring. It's just a natural 77 millimeter focal length and it looks great. So yeah, our encouragement to listeners, try using the 3X lens when you wouldn't normally, but you just want bokeh or if you just want to take a portrait, try that 3X. It looks pretty good. It's interesting because I mean, half of this is focal length. The other half of it is the F-stop and the iPhone having such a tiny camera doesn't really help its situation too much like we have incredibly low f-stop numbers on these things like f 1.6 1.8 um range yeah doesn't really mean anything when the camera's this small i mean that that number would be amazing on a sensor size like a sony cmos sensor or something like that like one inch sensor right. on on my sony alpha camera this a7 ii it, its sensor is the size of the camera bump on the iphone just the one right. sensor and i have a lens i shoot with like I, this is what i do my product photos and stuff usually when i do reviews sometimes i'll sneak an iphone photo in there just to see if anyone catches it and they usually don't but it's <laughs> interesting because the lens i have that i use for it my daily driver is max 70 millimeters which is not much i really need to invest in a zoom lens it's just one of those things where now my iphone technically has a longer focal length than my big boy camera so I, i'm gonna have to try uh some things obviously again the f stop is different yeah f stop 4.0 on this guy <laughs> it sounds like it's like much smaller aperture but it's it's funny because it still shoots way uh, crispier photos than the iPhone, uh, even oh, though the yeah. specs, you know, spec sheet wise, because again, we're dealing with bigger glass, more light, bigger sensor. I'm just interested in seeing where Apple goes from here, because I think honestly, for what we're dealing with, especially at this camera bump size, we're about, we're pretty much seeing the maximum of what they can do. I think there's rumors of a Periscope camera coming soon, which will allow much further zoom. Samsung has that 100x zoom, which technically works, but it's not the greatest camera in the world. I'd like to see Apple uh, dip their toe in that and see if even if we can get a 50x kind of uh, optical with periscoping. <laughs> that'd be nice. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. Anyway, camera 13 Pro is very good. And I'll, I'll link to Austin Mann's interview as well. You can hear him talk about it. This episode is brought to you by Gabby Insurance. It's crazy how fast the prices of just about everything are rising. Gas, groceries, clothes, you name it. All the experts are saying it's going to get worse before it gets better. So I've been looking at all the ways that I can personally cut costs and save money. One of the key places you can do this is auto insurance. And that's where Gabby comes in. Shopping for auto insurance is not a great experience. I get it. And so does Gabby. 
And so they do all the work for you. Things that would take days or weeks, Gabby can do in minutes. Gabby uses your current insurance policy to compare your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Nationwide and Travelers. They're the one true comparison platform with fast, verifiable quotes, not just ballpark guesses. And because Gabby uses your current coverage, they only show policies that are the same or better than your current coverage, many of them at a lower price. And Gabby is free to use, and they never sell your info, so no annoying spam or robocalls. And Gabby actually helped me find the right policy. I signed up, went through the whole process. Gabby makes it easy to connect your insurance, find your policy, and then they just tell you, here are the better deals. And you can see them right there, and you can jump on one of those cheaper policies really fast. People who switch with Gabby save on average $80 a month versus their current policy. And it's not just me who loves Gabby. Gabby has been featured in TechCrunch, Forbes, and USA Today. So start saving on your auto insurance by going to Gabby.com slash Apple Insider to start saving today. It's totally free. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash Apple Insider. Gabby.com slash Apple Insider to learn more. Our thanks to Gabby for sponsoring this episode and ExpressVPN. Going online without ExpressVPN is like changing while leaving your window wide open. You might not have anything to hide, but why give random creeps a chance to invade your privacy? Why does everyone need a VPN? Well, I use a VPN, especially when I'm traveling or in public places. When you're on those public Wi-Fi networks, your privacy and security is at risk. And using a VPN can help protect your security and privacy, even while you're at home. Internet service providers see every single website you visit, and they can legally sell this information without your consent to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you. When you use ExpressVPN, ISPs can't see your online activity, your identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server, and your data is encrypted for maximum protection. I love ExpressVPN because it's super easy to use. You just open the app, you click one button, and you can use it on all your devices. I use it on my iPhone, my iPad, my Mac. You can even install it on some Wi-Fi routers so your whole house is protected. I have done the research and looked into ExpressVPN, and they are independently audited by third parties. Their trusted server technology is second to none. They will keep your internet activity secure and private. So secure your online activity today by visiting expressvpn.com slash Apple Insider today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Apple Insider, and you can get an extra three months for free. Expressvpn.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode. So a couple of like lightning round things. AirPods Pro and AirPods Max had a firmware update that now adds Find My support. There's no U1 chip in the AirPods Pro, AirPods Max, so you don't get the same precision finding that you would with like an AirTag where you get an arrow on screen and all that, but it does utilize Bluetooth to tell you kind of how far they are away. And if you go to the Find My app, click a new Find button once your AirPods have actually updated to the newest firmware, you can click Find and it'll kind of tell you, you know, you're this far away or like kind of generally around here and all that kind of stuff. So a little better for sure if you lose your AirPods Pro or AirPods Max in the house and you want to use that Find location, you can do that now in the Find My app with the latest firmware update. I do wish you could force update the firmware on those devices. It is kind of this weird like, wait till it connects to your phone and it'll update when it chooses. There's no like force update the software or firmware on these on AirPods Pro or Max, but 
It might happen pretty quickly. I don't know if this was possible before. I know. Have you ever tried to pair someone else's AirPods to your phone? Yeah, it's a pain in the neck. Well, it just says these are not your AirPods, right? But you can usually get around it by doing a button press reset kind of thing. You do the button press. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's gone now. If you put your AirPods into lost mode, I'm looking at the screen right now. Lost mode. It'll notify when found, obviously. There's a pairing lock. This item is linked to your Apple ID so no one else can pair to it. That is really cool because AirPods is uh, one of those things that's obviously really easy to steal it's targetable or if you find some uh, you know free airpods there you go but now if it's impairing lock there's really no reason to keep them obviously someone might just throw them away at that point or try to scam someone out of a few dollars yeah i think this is a good deterrent uh if once people learn you can put your airpods into a pairing lock uh that'll be interesting because what do you do with airpods that can't be paired with your phone right uh, you can also leave a, a message it, it pops up on the pairing card please contact this number or something right for the airpods when they're found so that's pretty yeah. full-on find my loss mode yeah the only reason i know about pairing it with other devices is my kids sometimes want to try my airpods pro or even max and if i'm not using them i'm hard-pressed to be like no can't use them because i'm like well i'm not using them it's fine you know, they're just listening to music or whatever. And so when they want to use them, you know, they pair them with their device and they, they are very well equipped and well adept now at just doing it, you know, holding the back button or whatever. And I will know if they've used them because when I go to use them, I have to like hold the back button and repair it with my device sometimes. So I'm sure uh, they would say I just need to buy them AirPods, but I don't know. I'm, I've been holding out for AirPods 3 as they've been you know, rumored for months now. It was supposed to come out months ago and thought we'd see it at the iPhone event, but not. So I don't know. Maybe they'll come out soon, hopefully. Mac OS Safari. I just wanted to mention John Gruber had a great article talking about tabs in Safari on the Mac and why it's not a great situation design-wise. Can't tell which is the active tab. I thought it was a great article if you want to read it. I'd love to know, listeners, your opinion of tabs on the Mac and if you feel strongly as he does. There's also now an extension for Safari on Mac OS called Active Tab, and its sole purpose is to where you can customize what the Active Tab looks like on macOS Safari 15. You can make it a different color and all that. And if you would like to have a better glanceable idea of which tab is active, Active Tab is a great extension for you to get. I'll put that in show notes as well. It, it, it is funny listening to the internet scream about Safari this this generation because I have I don't think I've heard this many people complain about one single thing since the MacBook keyboard was a butterfly switch because mm, yes. wow just it's universally just despised by all of the super nerds making podcasts and it's it's pretty funny to me I I just really whenever there's a the all inclusive book about everything Apple like, like this better be a chapter in there about who decided to do this and why and yeah well and. I will say, I think I agree with Gruber. I'm not crazy about this design. I've not even used it on Mac OS yet, to be clear. So I, right, I don't I know. know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Right, I know. The one thing that I feel is a valid point about the new Safari 15 design on Mac OS is if you use the favorites bar where you can have your bookmarks and even bookmark folders persistently appear in Safari, you can do this on iPad OS too, but those bookmarks they moved that row, the favorites bar, underneath the tabs on macOS. And I think it's like this on iPadOS as well. And the problem is there's this weird thing of before your tabs were kind of connected to the content. So whatever tab was active, it was basically right adjacent to the website. And now on macOS, there's this weird separation where you have the address bar at the very top. Then you have all your row of tabs including whatever tab is active. And then you have the tab bar underneath those. And then you have the website. 
And that just little visual change, I think, is one of the reasons why it feels weird. At least it feels weird to me. Whereas my mind wants the tab to be adjacent to the content. So when the, like when you click on a tab, you know, like, oh, that's the active tab for, you know, this deal. I don't know. So I'll, listeners, I'll be curious your thought if you've been using Safari 15 on macOS and what you think of it. But I don't know. I still, I still think it's a little weird. Yeah, because you can you can download macOS or uh, I'm sorry, you can download Safari 15 even if you're on Big Sur still, right? That's that's available. Yeah, and that's what I'm doing. I, I have Big Sur still. I'm not on the macOS Monterey beta, but Safari 15 came out as just like a regular software update in system preferences that you could just like do right now. And so that's what I did. And yeah, it's weird. But anyway, that's macOS. So Google did announce that there's a Pixel 6 event on October 19th. I know it's an Android phone, not Apple, but I'm curious to hear what the new Tensor processor, Google's own silicon, is going to be like in those phones. I'm curious for those reviews. So if you're interested in that Pixel 6, October 19th is the event for that. I just wanted to point out what you were mentioning about the, the Pixel 6 processor. I really want to see benchmarks here because this is the first one that's full Google custom silicon, right? Yes. Like this is a departure from the uh, Snapdragon. So Correct. I want to see how this compares to Apple because this is their one chance. This is Google's one chance to, to upstage Apple and say, hey, our phones are actually as good or if not more powerful than Apple's custom processor. And honestly though, if if Google can't do that, this the Pixel line, I, it's been dead for years, but it's 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 buried even deeper, honestly. Just yeah. the seven people who do buy it are just going to be really sad and uh <laughs> I think I think we can finally just move on from the Pixel and maybe you know, next year Google will come out with the not Pixel, uh but it'll still be a Pixel. We'll right. see. Who knows. I did want to give a shout out to Dave. He sent me an email with a link to a YouTube video of Foundation, the Apple TV Plus original show. It's kind of like a little promo clip, but it has behind the scenes video footage of the orchestra and the in, the musicians recording the soundtrack for the Foundation TV show. It's a quick video. It's only like two minutes, but I love seeing that behind the scenes. I love to know that this music was recorded with live orchestra, live musicians. And one of the great parts about the Foundation TV show, which I've been enjoying, I've, I've watched the first three episodes and I'll be following it. I really do enjoy the show. The music is incredible. And knowing it's like this live orchestra playing it and was recorded, I just love it. So I'll put that video in the show notes as well. He mentions too in the little text below that there, there's algorithmically generated sound as well. So like they do play the music live and, and it's like a real track, but then he uses the, the tracks that they've recorded and then uses some sort of algorithm to generate these snippets that would pretty much be impossible to actually recreate by people. So it's just like this really interesting concept, I think. Like again, just Apple cranking it to 11 on these things. Um, yeah. I'm interested in listening to the soundtrack on its own uh, just to hear what it is because in the show, it's great. It's, it's it's good, good, good sound for what's happening on the screen. I've heard some people describe it as just uh, a little too much, but I like a good orchestral bit of work. I'm, I mean, I'm a fan of the music in uh, Star Wars Episode One, so yeah. fight me. Um, no, no, a hey, duel of the fates is great. That's a great song. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, over the top. I love it. I, I was watching this video you posted, the orchestral bit, and I was just thinking, you know, y you could play this over someone making a sandwich, and it would still be intense. Like <laughs> it's just, it's just really good. Yeah, it is. It is very good. And finally, I wanted to mention that this past Tuesday, which was October fifth, was the tenth anniversary of Steve Jobs passing away, and Apple actually had a commemorative video on the homepage. The whole homepage was dedicated to to the memory of Steve Jobs. And there was a video, they've now put it on their YouTube channel, so you can watch it there. But it was actually Steve's voice narrating, and there's clips of him in the video. And it was really heartwarming. And 
Johnny Ive also did an interview with the Wall Street Journal about him just remembering Steve Jobs. And it was kind of cool hearing him talk about it. You know, I guess they went to lunch almost every day together and they worked together for nearly 15 years. And hearing Johnny Ive talk about the, you know, his memory and it's one of those things where I tweeted about it on the day. It's wild to think it was 10 years ago. You know, I kind of still remember where I was when I had heard he had passed away. He said at one point he hopes to make a dent in the universe. And that's what he did, you know, just knowing the impact that his products have had. And, you know, it's one of those things where it was hard to explain to friends and family, like why I got emotional about this random tech CEO passing away who most people, you know, most normal people, they know of Steve Jobs. They know the name. They know he was a genius, had a great impact on technology, but maybe not have the same kind of, you know, background knowledge of who he was as a person and what his, you know, real genius brought to the table. But just thinking about the impact that Apple devices have had on my life and my career. Much of what I do now is thanks to the Apple devices that I bought, even though I didn't even know what I was getting into at some sometimes when I bought my first Mac. It changed the trajectory, I think. And I don't think that's an overstatement. And I think that's true for many people. I mean, just thinking of the many, many developers that exist out there that develop for macOS or iOS specifically and not really any other platform. You know, that's an entire career based on one company's product line and those who make videos and and films in Final Cut. And that's kind of where I started making videos in Final Cut. And that was the only one I had access to at the time, but it was also of a learning curve that made it accessible. And that makes a difference. And it, I think it it was a far, far reaching effect that Steve Jobs and Apple has had uh, on the world for sure. Yeah, I was one of those people, the normal people, I guess you could say, and when he died, because uh, I didn't have any idea who he was. I was 20 years old, didn't really pay attention to Apple, was completely outside of the tech sphere. I was uh, what you would call a, a gamer. You, I know it's awful, but <laughs> no, no. I was in nuclear power training or I was just checking in on the care. Either way, uh, just zero internet connection kind of th- kind of situation in life, you know, going through that pipeline for the Navy and stuff, you just don't really have much access to the outside world other than contacting your family, unless you're just heavily on the internet anyway, which, you know, 2011, unless you, like, I think I had the Samsung Galaxy Nexus phone, which look it up, it's not great. <laughs> I didn't start getting into the tech stuff and start realizing like my love for computers and technology for at least another three or four years after that point. So it just completely escaped me. I remember someone even making the comment like, oh yeah, the, you know, Apple CEO, founder guy, uh, Steve Jobs, he died, you know, and I just was like, okay, and moved on. That right. didn't really impact me. But, you know, later on, and once I really started diving into Apple and its history, it has definitely impacted me on like how influential this per- in one person was. And, uh, yeah. you know, watching the various documentaries and, and movies made about him, like Pirates of Silicon Valley, go back and watch that guys. If you haven't watched it in a while, it's still so good. It's such <laughs> a good, good movie. Yeah. yeah. Just the impact that one person uh, can make on the world and the amount of technology and the amount of stuff that we've seen from this one company over the past uh, 30 years is just astounding. And it does suck to think like, wonder what would have happened if he had stuck around these last 10 years. You know, what if Johnny Ivins and Steve Jobs had, uh, you know, run the forefront of Apple for the last decade, what would we be doing right now? We'd probably be driving around in our Apple cars and uh, <laughs> having robot service tea. Who knows? That's right. But um, All with AR glasses, for sure. Right. Yeah. If you remember Steve Jobs or, you know, just have been with Apple a long time, we'll put the article in the show notes talking about the 10th anniversary of his passing. But also encourage you to read that interview with Johnny Ive. It's pretty cool. And they've been a previous sponsor of Wondery. They make the Business Movers podcast. And there was actually several 
shows talking about Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive. And it was a it was a fun listen and hearing about some of the behind the scenes stuff. So would encourage that and also recommend I've recommended it before, but Creative Selection, which is a book by Ken Cusienda. He was a developer at Apple. He worked on the iPhone keyboard originally, as well as Safari for Mac and then the iPad keyboard. And he has some stories about working at Apple and his experiences with Steve Jobs. It's really interesting to read the behind the scenes. So would encourage you if you're interested. Uh, those are some some great options there. But listeners would love to hear from you. You can tweet at Wes and myself. Our Twitter handles are in the show notes. We'd also greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. That really helps out the show. You can support us that way or support us directly in Apple Podcasts with $5 a month. You can get an ad-free, uninterrupted version of the show. You can also do that on Patreon at patreon.com slash Apple Insider. Also check out HomeKit Insider, that show with Andrew O'Hara and myself. We talk about HomeKit and smart home devices. It's a lot of fun. So thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.